Hey listeners, today's guest, Jerome Maldonado, brings some serious advice on adjusting investment strategies to prepare for the next recession and using information from world events to logic your way to a safer portfolio. This is Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate, where we guide you through the relentless pursuit of financial independence. I'm your host, Justin Moy, managing partner at Perpetual Wealth Capital, a multifamily real estate investing firm that lets everyday people invest passively in income-producing apartment buildings. Hey, investors. Welcome to another episode of Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate. Today, I am sitting down with Jerome, and Jerome is a serial entrepreneur and investor in so many fields, including e-commerce, retail, multifamily, construction, warehouse, industrial, and even at one time was the largest subway franchisee in the nation, or one of the largest subway franchisees. He has a ton of experience being an entrepreneur, being an investor, and we are so excited to learn from him today. So Jerome, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Justin. Really appreciate you having me. So tell us a little bit about your experience, specifically in the real estate space. I mean, you have so much experience and are continuing to build upon that experience. I know you have a lot of retail and a lot of warehouse. You talk about industrial quite a bit. You build multifamily. Tell us about those niches and which ones maybe you were favorite or maybe the most profitable. Yeah. I think like anybody, the most profitable are probably my favorite, more so than even the more profitable ones now. It's the ones that bring in the largest returns that are the most passive. And so we were down at a conference this weekend and people were talking about their Airbnb arbitrage models and mm. trying to sway me in those. And I told them I'm not going to get sidetracked from our goals because that's not a full passive model, right? It's a semi-passive business yeah. model. So everything that we're doing today, being that I've been in the space for a long time and we're moving more towards an area where we want 100% passive and nothing's 100% passive, but we're auditing paper. We're, most of what we do now is larger multi-unit real estate that's passive that we can give off to property management companies. And essentially, we're auditing paper every month. You know, we're looking at books. We're looking at numbers. And that's the stuff, Justin, that we really love now. But there's been a lot. We've done so much over the last 20 plus years to get here. And we didn't start there. I wish we would have, but we didn't. I didn't know anything about it 25 years ago. Yeah. So. And that's why we have you on the show. So people who are 20 years in the past from where you are today can just start off right with that knowledge. So tell us, I guess, about laying down that foundation, because maybe I have a couple of properties or projects. I'm not really in the day-to-day, maybe a couple of times a week, a couple of times a month, I'll check in on things and make sure they're still going well. But tell us about that foundation. If somebody wants that path, what are some of the beginning things that they could do to set themselves up so that they can eventually build a portfolio like that? Sure. It all starts with generating capital first. And so what lands up happening is I think everybody when they're young wants to make money and a lot of it because they want stuff, right? They want a better life and they associate having a lot of money with having a lot of nice stuff, whether that's nice cars, nice homes, whatever that may be. Then as you start to mature a little bit, you start realizing, okay, the stuff comes, it goes, it gets old and you really need stability in your life. And so I think so many times young professionals are just looking at trying to set their lives up and they're trying to just get the essentials that they feel they need in life, which is that beautiful home or those nice cars and the stuff that really, as you mature, you sit back and go, that stuff's nice to have, but you don't really need it, right? You want freedom and flexibility. And so everything that we've built now towards our passive income 
all move towards that. And it's really because of our kids. We've made a ton of money over the years, millions and millions of dollars. It's been awesome. And I've always been one that's always prepared for residual income. It's just that I think we prepared in early years in the wrong areas. We weren't looking at historical trends. We were just investing in real estate. We had our blindfold on because we didn't really know the entire game. And so we just went straight into retail, not thinking about e-commerce, not thinking about the changing of how money is spent and migrated, where it comes in from the consumers and out to the end users. And that stuff has evolved tremendously since we started in the game. And rightfully so, we started in the game in 1998. And in 1996, the internet was created. We didn't know that e-commerce was going to be where it is today, obviously. And so that has been a big migration of why real estate has changed so much. And so when we were heavily involved in retail, back in 2000, we were buying value-add retail value add office. We were building new office. We were building new retail. And then the recession hit and said, okay, we need to travel down a new horizon here because this isn't going to work. So the way we made money is we had our construction company, but we made a ton of money just in buying land and building houses. We would buy just infill lots or regular lots. And we were making six figures on every house we built. And so instead of paying taxes, I would dump that money and deploy it into real estate. And that portfolio grew. It gave us the ability to diversify now after recession into multifamily, not only new construction, but a lot of value add. So we've done a little bit of both. They've both been advantageous and we are multi-diversified. We have a lot of industrial warehouse space now, also a great asset class. So we do, we have a lot of diversification in our portfolio. Yeah. You kind of have those stages of money and what money means to you because I look back at maybe some of my friends who are a little bit younger and they are grinding super hardcore. And I remember doing that life when I was in real estate sales, working those 15 plus hour days. And you're just like, I just want the money so I can get the things that I want. And then you progress through stages. Okay. Now I want stability and now I want to give back and I want to have my own charities. But you said something there really quickly that I think you touched on a little bit, but I'd love to dive in a little bit more. When you first got started, and I think you mentioned it was in the retail space or maybe the office space, you said that you didn't really look at, I guess, historical trends or historical data. And maybe if you did a little bit better, I don't know if you would have made different decisions or not, but what were those trends? And was it the creation of the internet that would have swayed your actions? Or what exactly are some of the trends that you should have looked for and that investors should look for today? Well, just I didn't look at any trends. I truly thought I was the badass in real estate. I had all this success. I was building out subdivisions, buying land, building houses, had a seven-figure construction company going, making millions of dollars, pouring concrete all over the place. And I felt that way. I felt like I was buying the only piece of land and every piece of land was like this premium because everything that we touched turned to gold. But when things are great, it's not very hard to turn dirt into gold. And that's where I think we're at right now. With a lot of people, I think they feel like they've had so much success. There's people in the space. This reminds me a lot of 2006. Teachers became realtors and accountants became real estate investor professionals. And everybody was like this real estate guru. And then 2008 came by 2009, it cleaned house. Teachers went back to teaching. Accountants went back to being accountants. Engineers went back to being engineers. And the true real estate professionals were still in the industry, struggling, but still in the industry. And so we look at a lot of historical data because obviously I didn't know about trends. I didn't know that every 10 to 15 years, historically, since the Great Depression, there's typically a market adjustment. And so we look at those, what created those market adjustments? Why did that happen? And so we've done a lot of historical 
insight now. And there's going to be pieces of history that present themselves in the future, but the future is the future, right? We don't have a crystal ball. So there are circumstances. And so I can give you some examples and I can give you like a little bit of my foresight of how I think things are moving. And I can give you some scenarios of how I think things are migrating and the best asset classes that I think are going to be the most profitable long-term, but they're speculative. Like we don't know for sure. It depends on how history plays itself out. And a lot has to do now with like the war with Russia and Ukraine. And this could be the most advantageous things that's happened to the United States in a long time, depending on how all this pans out. And I know most people are sitting back going, oh my God, this is going to affect us. We're seeing mass appreciation and we're seeing all this inflation. This is bad. And if you think about it from a national perspective in the United States, this could be one of the most financially benefiting scenarios. Not that what's happening in the Ukraine is great because it's bad, but if you have to take something that's already happening, we can't control and we can make something good out of it. If our politicians do it right, this could be one of the best financial things that's happened to the United States in decades. How so? Because when we think about, I guess, global conflict, whether America's involved physically or not, America's always involved in some aspect, whether it's financially or boots on the ground. And with that, we know the country needs that mass influx of money. We typically would anticipate more inflation, which yes, for real estate investors can be very beneficial for the average consumer, maybe not so much. And I did an episode on this in the past where, of course, when the country needs that large amount of money, okay, they could print off more money, but coming from COVID where we just printed off whatever it is, 70, 80% of all the wealth ever created, I don't know if that's really on the table. So tell me about kind of how the conflict is going to impact things and what I guess should happen or could happen that could make this very advantageous for us. So obviously, if the war continues, the longer it goes, it's bad. We have troops down there. I don't even know if Biden really knows why we have troops down there. I don't think we really even know why we have troops down there. And hopefully we don't exercise that because if there's nuclear devastation, my philosophy goes down the drain. Our world leaders are smarter than that. I'd like to believe that. And so hopefully we have troops down there to support and we don't really actually do anything as part of the war. Now, if you look at like Russia and you look at historians, that area of Ukraine has been of interest to the European nation and Rome and to Mm -hmm. Russia for a long period of time. There's been a lot of fighting and stuff in that area. And I don't think this has to do with control because Putin already has control. I mean, he pretty much owns Russia right now. (laughs) And so if you look at it from that standpoint, I think Putin just really loves money. And so it's less so power, more so to do with money. I think they want that area for the production of revenue. And so That area has been in dispute for that purpose for a long time. But Russia has never been one that goes in and takes over territories. Putin, I think, is just money hungry. I think there's going to be some type of negotiation and settlement is what I think is going to happen. If you take a look at like smart investors like Bill Gates, the number one farmland owner in the world is Bill Gates. He owns more farmland than anybody else. And why is, I never really understood why. Now I'm kind of like understanding a little bit of what's happening. So 15% of our grains and wheats and stuff come in from the Ukraine. Now that all of this is happening, we have the natural resources here in the United States to produce that. So what I really think is going to happen is if our government benefits our agricultural farmers, 
I think farmland is going to be one of the number one asset classes coming up here in the near future. I think there's going to be a ton of tax rebates. There's going to be agricultural rebates. There's going to be a ton of stuff that's going to open up for the farmers. It's going to come out of legislation in Congress over the next few years. I've been known to be wrong, but I think that our trade agreements with Ukraine and everything that's happening in the war, it's costing us in our commodities. And so to prevent that, we have the natural resources right here. We have the farmland available. We are the farming capital of the world. And I think we're going to start seeing more of these rebates and agricultural and tax benefits to farmers. And I think we're going to start seeing a lot more farmland open up here in the United States locally. So that's one thing. The pipelines. We have our own natural resources. If we can get the Democrats and Republicans to work together and we can open up like the Keystone Pipeline again, where there's very little environmental impact from that. In fact, there's more environmental impact from windmills than there is from the pipeline. There's more money spent in environmental protection and in environmental security on those pipelines than there is in any other sector of environmental protection in any other asset class in the world. So it's a political ploy. But if we open up that Exxon pipeline, it's going to do a lot of stuff. We're not going to have to import nearly as much oil. We have enough natural resources here in the United States that we're in a good place. It'll create job opportunities, and it'll also create housing all the way from up north, all the way to down south. So we're coming from the Canadian border all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. So a lot of that, and that's going to create a need for housing and everything. And so those are two samples of how our economic growth can empower us with what's happening right now. And I think that if we play it right, the cards are in our favor, and I think we're going to do extremely well. We're going to walk out of this extremely well. The war has to end sooner than later. And there's variables in there. That's what I'm advocating for. That's where I'm going because I'm sitting back thinking, God, if we can get to that area, we're going to come out of this more affluent as a nation than we ever have been ever before. And so it's really important what you talked about, specifically about the farmland, because I've read about those studies as well, all the grain and the wheat that come from Ukraine and how it's going to impact X amount of millions of people's lives and their ability to access food. And thinking about what's happening in the world that's going to incentivize the government to want me to invest in certain fields. So LIHTC, low-income housing was a big, it still continues to be, but there's enormous benefits of it because you have to think, what does the government want? They use taxes to incentivize. Mm -hmm. So if they want you to invest in more low-income housing, they're going to release higher incentives for that. If they need farmland or they need produced goods, they're going to incentivize that. If they need more storage or warehouse, they are going to incentivize investors like us to do those things. So what's a big need and that the government wants and will the government pay investors like us to solve their problem for them, like low-income housing, like farmland, things like that. So really, really great way to look at that conflict. I mean, looking forward to recession because you've actually invested through a few. And I've heard a lot about those 10 to 15 year cycles. You always hear that. I've heard some people say, well, hey, COVID may have kind of messed that up because yes, while COVID was a recession, it wasn't really one, you know, it was a little bit of a different kind of thing. And now we're seeing things with like the yield curve starting to invert. We kind of feel like that recession's there. And I think you said it earlier too, everybody was a real estate professional before the last recession. And we're kind of seeing that now. I mean, I had a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago that said, yeah, his Uber driver was telling him about the four Airbnbs he's running. And that's when he looked up from his phone and said, oh, shoot. This is exactly the conversation we had with our barbers and our gardeners back in 2007. So we kind of feel it breathing on the back of our necks of that recession. We see a lot of those signs. What are you doing today or have you been doing for the past few years so that you can sleep comfortably at night? Know, hey, when the next recession comes, 
we're going to be okay. Our portfolio is going to be good. Is it the new construction stuff? Is that more recession proof? Is it sticking to the retail and things like that? Or what action are you taking? That's a great question. And it's a loaded question. And it's a very good one because a lot of people want to know that. I feel very confident in what we're doing right now. So we're still buying land. We're building houses. We're doing them individually. We're not taking on large builds because there is a need for housing. But our market sector is pretty unique in the asset class that we actually hit. We hit a lot of empty nesters, retirees, people with money that still have the affluency in their life. Even in a compressed market, they don't get affected by it as much because they obviously have a fixed income. Mm -hmm. And so nine times out of 10, there's going to be a fluency that stays stable during a recession. Now that's one, that's our active income. Now our passive income, just like you said, affordable housing is huge. There's a need for it, especially now that there's been so much inflation and rent pushes have been so aggressive over the last few years. And so because of that, like you said, the government incentivizes us. Just like tax segregation, there's a need for development and growth because the developers take on the risk Our federal government doesn't have the ability to build out the housing that we need. They just tried it. They can't do it. And so government workforce housing, they've tried it before. It doesn't work. They're not individual um, investors. They can't do it. So that leaves it to us. So they incentivize us for taking the risk, putting out the capital to provide the housing. We get incentivized by through like tax segregation and depreciation. And we're able to take advantage of a lot of that stuff. But Affordable housing and what we're doing is we're going out and we're building multifamily, but we're building it in an affordable standpoint. Now, in some municipalities, we're rewarded for it. Like in Tacoma, we have an eight-year tax abatement, which is going to be equivalent to about a $6 million tax savings. That's awesome. I mean, we're going to make $6 million on the tax abatements only, and those were pre-approved redevelopment tax abatements that we didn't even have to apply for. We just had to go in and build in those areas. Now, in other areas, we're not getting those type of incentives, but what we're doing is we're going into building more of an affordable housing model where we're stripping out amenities. We're building the asset itself to look like class A, just like any other apartment complex. So you walk in, it's new construction. People love it because it is new. It looks just like any other class A apartment complex with the exception that the amenities have been diminished. So we're pulling out swimming pools. We're pulling out clubhouses. We're pulling out all the big amenities. We'll do a little tiny gym in there, but all the amenities essentially are taken out. We keep the landscaping extremely simple. And so what we're able to do is build out that asset at a more effective cost. And we can compete with class B housing and B rents instead of class A rents. So where a class A is maybe renting an apartment complex for $2,000 per month, for a one bedroom, we can go in and rent it for $1,600 a month. And that $400 variance is huge. That's a big savings for people. And we're able to do that. And what's great about our asset class is that we have the ability to push rents because we're not building it under an affordable housing model where we're federally mandated to keep rents where they're at. We're not locked into those rents. We can push them if we want to, but we don't need to. We're at a cost and expense place where we can go out and we can lease these for less money. So the people that are coming out of class A that can't afford to live there anymore, and they need that $400 savings, they can move into ours and they can go get a $29 a month membership at Planet Fitness and go get their gym membership there instead of at their facility. Because I mean, I know you're a syndicator. I go to my apartment complexes that I own that have gyms and full amenities. And at any given time with over a hundred units, I'll maybe see one person in the gym and 90% of the time I see absolutely nobody in there. Yeah, that's true. 
you know, a lot of complexes put those gyms out there just to check the box to say that there's a fitness facility there. It's marketing. Pool too. The pool's like a little pond. Just to say that, yes, we have a pool and we compete with the other people. I think it's really, really interesting. The methodology of where do you fit into the space? Because a lot of people, when they think about investing or buying apartments, they always think about that class A, oh, that beautiful apartment building. Oh, we're going to syndicate this thing. And I'm going to be a part owner in this enormous 2022 build. And I don't know if that's really the rock solid place. I like the plays that you do. Where is the biggest need? The biggest need is in affordable housing. If you look at construction trends versus population growth, you'll see an enormous glaring issue that's been trending for over the past 15, 20 years. And it's only gotten worse the past couple of years where there's just the numbers don't match up. The amount of new people does not match up anywhere close to the amount of buildings being built. And there's not a ton of vacancies already. Look at that big glaring issue and see how you can fit in to solve it because that is going to be recession-proof. The governments will make sure that you survive and that you can still continue to build and to house. I know we only a couple of minutes here. I want to give you a lot of time just because you have so much more to offer that any singular podcast just cannot encapsulate everything that you've been through, learned, and know. And I'm sure there's still a ton on the table. So Jerome, I mean, how can people get a hold of you and who should maybe reach out and get in touch? So anybody interested in first comes generating capital, Justin, and a lot of people looking at this, they're sitting back struggling because they just want to get involved in real estate. That's why they're watching your channel. That's why they're following this stuff. They don't know where to start. And syndicating, for those who understand and educate, can get into it as an LP or a GP, a general partner or limited partner is great. But there's a lot of people that that's an intimidating process to become a part of. So just like me, when I got started buying a single family rental home. And so for those people that are just getting started, the first thing is make some revenue. We teach people how to go out, buy a piece of land, build a house, make over $100,000 doing it. You can do that part-time and passively on the side while you work your full-time job. Don't compromise that stuff. The real estate game is a long-term game. You're not going to go out and get wealthy overnight with real estate, but you will mass a fortune in real estate if you do it correctly. So my advice to people is start learning the game, get involved. And get involved in something that can generate you capital. As you generate capital and have small wins in real estate, start understanding the investment game. If Even if you have to start small, start small, but scale big fast. Because the big deals are just as much work as the little tiny deals. And you'll understand what I'm talking about once you get there. So for those of you guys who sit back going, should I buy a duplex or should I buy a fourplex? My answer to you if it's your first deal is yes, buy it to learn and then get out of it and go bigger. And that's my advice to anybody. And like I said, you'll understand what I'm talking about once you're there, because you'll sit back and go, I get it. I know what Jerome's talking about now. This little fourplex was a pain in the ass. If I'm going to do it for four, I might as well do it for 50, because the same amount of work it takes to get the financing, the rehab, everything is the exact same amount for a fourplex as a 50plex. You just have more revenue. And the revenue is what makes it sweet. So at the end of the day, we're all after the same thing. And it's a better lifestyle, better revenue. And so for those people that want to find me, my name's here in the podcast. You guys can find me anywhere. Find me on YouTube, tons of content on YouTube, tons of great information, tons of educational stuff. And you can follow our story or you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or any other platform. 
but yeah, real easy to find, Justin. Perfect, Jerome. Thank you so much. We are going to put all of those links in the show notes. Listeners, reach out to Jerome. Like I said, tons and tons and tons to learn, absorb some of that content. And totally love what you said about the scale that's brought us to syndications, right? Give access to the very, very large deals, which are sometimes not even the same work, but a lot easier because you have a lot better contractors yeah. and vendors to work with with the larger properties. So listeners, thank you so much for spending a few minutes of your day with us. And Jerome, thanks for coming on. Hey, Justin, thank you, man. Appreciate you introducing me to your audience and you have yourself a great day.